0: you would, please join me in taking out your Bibles and turning to Acts chapter 26. As we go to God's Word, let's go to Him once again in prayer. That duty and that delight, that priority, and that privilege. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, We are gathered here for you to speak to us through your word and by your spirit. Father, we want to know what we are to believe about you and also what duty you ask of your forgiven, rescued and redeemed people. So, Father, please open our hearts to your word and open your word to our hearts that we would more and more grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. For it's in His name we pray. Amen. I think we've all heard this expression, practice what you preach. Practice what you preach. Uh, Most often, it seems that we see it not being done people not practicing what they're preaching, and it's a big discouragement. However, every now and then, and hopefully more often, we see it being done, people practicing what they are preaching, and it is a huge encouragement to us. I want to share a brief story of a time when seeing someone practice what they preach was a huge encouragement to me back in around 1995 1996 I used to meet with a man several times a week Uh, many of you have heard me mention his name uh, Wayne Haddock Um, he was the man that God chose to be in many ways my spiritual father my spiritual mentor um, pointed me to Jesus Christ more than anyone else I I know Uh, he officiated our wedding in 1997 Fifteen years later, sadly, I officiated his funeral, and one time, I showed up at his house um, early one morning to meet, and he wasn 't there, and his wife, Miriam, let me in and I was sitting in his study waiting for him and It was a cold morning and um, she said he was out uh, he had to walk to the store and he would be back soon and He came in a few minutes after I got there, and it was a cold morning it was probably winter time. Uh, And he comes in the door, and he wasn't wearing a coat. Found that pretty odd. Uh, If anything, Wayne was a man of great common sense, and you wear coats when it's cold outside. And I I said to Wayne, you know, maybe I was going to make some smart remark or whatever. I said, where's your coat? And if you knew him, you knew that, of course, he battled pride and arrogance like all of us, but one of the most humble men I've ever known. And he said... Well, I was walking back, and there was a man who needed a coat, and I gave it to him. I mean, literally, he gave the coat off of his own back, probably to a homeless man who needed the coat more than he needed. I mean, here I am, years later, telling you this story. I remember it. It just confirmed to me that he practiced what he preached. He practiced doing good to others and he most certainly preached that those who are new creations in Christ do good to others well in our text today I think we'll be presented with an outstanding biblical example of someone practicing what they've been preaching and as we look back at our history I believe this incident can and will be a great encouragement as we move forward in our mission. So, today in chapter 26, we're going to be looking at defending the faith, and next week, uh, commending the faith. Now, it's been said that the best defense is a good offense, and, and so we'll see uh, today a bit of offense within the defense. Um, and, and this what we'll see today in our text is is really what Paul has been preaching all along as he's gone around the Mediterranean, establishing churches, helping churches to be strengthened. And and we see it specifically to the church in Corinth. Um, Turn with me, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I mean, last week it was awesome. Jason basically stopped us in Acts and drilled down on a chapter in 1 Corinthians. And here's a, a particular section of The second letter to the Corinthians, uh, chapter 5, and I want to read verses 17 through 21. This is Paul writing from Ephesus back to the church in Corinth, and he says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So he's telling the Corinthian church, We are ambassadors for Christ. God is making His appeal to the world, as it were, through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And then he goes on, For our sake He made Him, that is Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. We will see today... Paul, before Agrippa, practicing what he just preached to the Corinthian church. Our approach to these 23 verses will be first to recognize the audience to whom Paul is speaking. Then we'll make a quick overview of the argument Paul lays out before the Jewish king. And after that, we'll slow down a bit and consider the appeal Paul is making. So the audience, the argument and the appeal here's verse one so Agrippa said to Paul you have permission to speak for yourself then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense well before whom and to whom is Paul speaking King Agrippa the Jewish king he's the last of the kings of the Herodian dynasty a powerful royal family who, though professing the biblical faith, had lived lives of violence and corruption for generations. They were all, in one way or another, morally correct. He's the great-grandson of King Herod the Great. And what's King Herod the Great known for? Trying to kill the newborn Jesus of Nazareth. Killed a whole lot of Newborns in an attempt to kill this one who was born King of the Jews. And that man's son, Antipas, what did he do? He beheaded John the Baptist. And his grandson, King Herod the Great's grandson, Herod Agrippa I, killed James, arrested Peter, and he died under God's judgment. And here, his son, Herod agrippa the second it's before whom paul is speaking now how did paul get an audience with this jewish king remember jesus had told his disciples "Uh, you're going to speak before kings and governors and you're going to bear witness and i'm going to provide the words that you need to say and the spirit will be with you and here is paul he's spoken before governors he's now speaking before a king two weeks ago we looked at uh Verses 13 through 27 of chapter 25 in pomp and circumstance. Remember, Paul had appealed to Caesar and the Roman governor uh, Festus had to figure out what exactly is he going to say to Caesar about why I'm sending you this Jewish man. And he, and he took advantage of this occasion when Agrippa and his sister Bernice showed up to greet the governor in Caesarea And we saw two weeks ago they had a private conversation and then there was the beginning of a public hearing. And then last time at the literal center and at the uh, central importance, we saw even though Paul didn't speak directly, his words and the words of Jesus were central and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead pomp and circumstance last time we saw a magnificent show where the the king was dressed in purple royal robes and the and the governor was most likely dressed in in red it's a magnificent show versus this man in chains this prisoner paul who nonetheless had had a life transforming reality it was a show versus the reality so he, Paul, is getting ready to make his defense before King Agrippa. And he, he knows, as we will hear, he knows his audience. He knows who he's speaking to. And before we move on, I think it's important for all of us to recognize how important that is to know who it is we're talking to about the faith. I think sometimes we think it's a one-size-fits-all and I love the expression, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. No. Proclaiming the gospel, speaking the good news, there are various tools, as it were, to use. We adjust. We adapt as needed and as necessary. And that in no way compromises the truth. You see, Christianity is the most culturally flexible of any, as it were, world religion. Remember, we read often in Scripture, the good news going out to all nations, and we see at the end in Revelation, that great multitude from every tongue and tribe and nation. You see, Christianity doesn't require, as we've seen already in Acts you, to be a Gentile to become a Jew in order to become a Christian. There's no particular dress code for Christianity. There's no specific language. We don't have to wear a white robe, and we don't have to go to Mecca and, and speak Arabic. No. The truth of Christianity is, adapt- the, the truth is unchanging, but how it's brought out into the nations can be adapted to countries and nations, cultures. And we see Paul knowing who he's talking to, a Jewish king. Paul knows his audience. He knows who he's talking to. He, he's going to adjust and adapt his argument accordingly. Now let's take a quick look at the stages of the argument Paul will make. And we will make uh, a really brief overview of his argument. Verses two and three, Paul says this. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. Right off the bat, Paul is going to signal the direction of the argument. He assumes, rightly so, that the king is familiar with the Jewish religion. He's a Jew in name only. He's already had the power to appoint the Jewish high priest. He's, He's not a Roman governor. He's a Jewish king. So he assumes the king is familiar, but he also assumes that the king has the intelligence and the intellectual seriousness to listen to a sustained argument. Paul is not going to give him a soundbite. Paul is not on Twitter, limited to so many characters. No, he's going to speak sustained argument. And next in verses four to eight, we will see Paul show evidence of his complete commitment to the biblical faith of his fathers. Picking it up in verse four, my manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time if they are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion I have lived as a Pharisee and now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? So here again, Paul is showing evidence of his complete commitment to the biblical faith of his father's. He described himself as a Pharisee of the strictest party. He's well-versed in and he's committed to the biblical truth and the law of God. And he would say in his letter to the Philippian church, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. There's nobody more committed, nobody that could do it better than me as he speaks of his life as Saul, the Pharisee. And yet the Pharisees rightly believed in God's promise to the fathers that there would be a future resurrection from the dead where God would separate the just from the unjust. It was part of the faith of the fathers and and Paul says, I believe that. And the reason, O King, I'm here before you, before the Roman governor and will be before Caesar is the reason I'm here is I believe it. I believe in the hope of the resurrection. I'm not... I'm not departing from the faith of my fathers. No, I'm just taking it very seriously. And Paul's going to talk about his life now. Not only was he committed completely to the biblical faith of his fathers, but he was also committed to a violent persecution of people who believed that Jesus of Nazareth was the son of God who believed that Jesus of Nazareth was the expected Messiah. Listen to these words from verses 9 to 11. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Now this is the third time Paul is giving his testimony, speaking of his conversion. In in Luke, excuse me, in Acts 9, we read kind of a narrative description. In Acts 22, it's before the Jewish Sanhedrin. He's, He's giving his personal testimony of his conversion. And now before King Agrippa. Notice, he loved God's law, but he raged in fury. And he opposed anyone who said that Jesus was the Messiah. interesting isn't he's fully committed to both the faith of the fathers but he's also fully committed to crushing this new aspect this new sect of judaism he's if anything he's fully committed i mean let's step back for a moment i mean paul was fully committed to obeying god in the big things and the small things from the Ten Commandments to all the other laws that the Pharisees in particular had put around the Ten Commandments. So they wouldn't get close to violating the Ten Commandments. There was nobody more obedient than Paul. And yet, with all of that going for him, he did not know Jesus. But something's going to change because Paul is setting up the next stage in his argument something something must have happened to paul and of course we know it but let's hear his words in verses 12 through 16 in this connection that is going to persecute christians to put them in jail and put them to death in this connection i journeyed to damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest at midday o king i saw on the way a light from heaven "'brighter than the sun that shone around me "'and those who journeyed with me. "'And when we had all fallen to the ground, "'I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, "'Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? "'It is hard for you to kick against the goads.' "'And I said, who are you, Lord?' "'And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. "'But rise and stand upon your feet,' For I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to which and to those in which I will appear to you. So here's his first big evidence. He's laid before the king, the evidence of the reality of the resurrected Christ. We've talked about it many times before. Saul meets the risen Christ. He's converted. He's a new man. He's a changed man. And then he's commissioned to serve as a witness. And only in this account do we read this interesting expression. I am Jesus. Excuse me. Um, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. It's an expression common at that time. Uh, has to do with... Um, kind of a uh, how you would prod an ox or another animal along, that they you prod them with this goad, with this um, stick. And the expression is kind of, um, there's some things that you just can't resist. And here Jesus is saying, Saul, Saul, don't resist me anymore. You can't resist me. Your will is not going to be done, Saul, but my will is going to be done. And so when confronted with the reality, that audio-visual experience, the bright light greater than the noonday sun, everybody hits the deck, Paul hears the voice. It's not a psychological experience. They all encountered something, and it's a revelation of Jesus Christ, and, and Paul's life was changed. We continue now through verses 17 through 21, where Paul is going to pick up and explain the hostility of the Jewish leaders toward him. Beginning in verse 17 Delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, it's part of Jesus' commission, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light And tried to kill me. Paul is being accused, he's being harassed, he's being he's tried to be seized, and we know they're trying to kill him, not because he's being untrue to the biblical faith and hope of Israel, rather, it's because he is is proclaiming that it's through Christ. That non-Jews, that Gentiles, can share in the same faith and hope of Israel. The hostility, as we've seen in Acts, it's it's when the gospel goes to the Gentiles. You know, I, I've thought, um, you know, when there's a good gift given to me, you know, I want to hold on to it. Do you? Do you want other people also to get that same good gift? It's all about how it's going to take a while for Jews to wake up to see that the Messiah is not only their Messiah. He's the Messiah for the nations. And we'll get to that a bit more detail in a moment. And then finally... After that primary evidence of the resurrected Christ meeting Paul or Saul on the road to Damascus, the next big evidence is the testimony of the scriptures themselves. Pick up with me in verse 22 and 23. To this day, Paul says, I have had the help that comes from God. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass that the Christ must suffer and that being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Paul says rightly that the scriptures themselves point to and look to Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah. Jesus says that when he's with his disciples after his resurrection and he opened their minds to the scriptures he he pointed out that all everything in the law and the prophets pointed pointed to him you see the testimony of scripture is saying that through his work that is through his life death and resurrection that Jesus would bring salvation here known as light to both Jews and Gentiles the real reason again for his persecution It's not just that the Gentiles need Jesus as Savior, but the Jews also need Jesus as Savior. It's not only Jews, excuse me, it's not only Gentiles, but it's Jews also who can only be rightly related with their own God through faith in Jesus. And he makes that very clear in the early chapters of his letter to the Roman church what not only is this good gift going to these other people but you're saying that we also have to receive this gift paul is putting both jew and gentile on equal spiritual footing both equally need the light of jesus christ and both can equally receive it it's the parable of the prodigal son it's the parable of the two sons both the younger son who ran away from the father and the older son who stayed, as it were, close to the father, were both estranged from the father. One tried to to make it through his disobedience. The other tried to make it through his obedience. They were both, whether it's through religion or irreligion, estranged from the father. And so we see here that Paul is making an argument well, let's now back up and slow down for a moment and consider a bit more detail, verses 17 through 23, and consider the appeal now that Paul makes. Although on the surface, Paul is, is seeking, as it were, to clear himself legally, he's really seeking to persuade Agrippa, as we will see in particular next week. Everybody gathered there in that, in that audience hall, uh, they, they see Paul as a prisoner in chains, And yet, Paul is speaking as a free man. So let's look at the appeal, remembering that the best defense is a good offense. He's both defending and commending the faith. Remember from 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And that's what Paul is going to do here if we unpack verses 17 through 23 because here in these verses we will see the need for salvation the method of salvation and the ground of salvation first the need of salvation our lost condition look at the first half of verse 18 to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of satan to god See, the first half of verse 18 tells what God does for us and what condition we're all in. Our eyes have to be opened. The power of Satan that has the world in its grip has to be broken. In other words, Paul through his words is saying to King Agrippa and everybody listening that that we are spiritually blind and spiritually enslaved, though we don't know it. We think we can see, we think we're free, but we're blind and we're enslaved. So everybody is in the condition of being lost and needs salvation. And then in that second half of verse 18 is the method of salvation. He, he tells us what we must do. That They may receive forgiveness and sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. But he goes on and he speaks of repenting, turning to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. He's saying that they must turn, they must repent, they must change their mind. And in doing so, in turning, what will they receive? They will receive forgiveness. They will receive a pardon and they will receive a place. A place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Let that sink in for a moment. Justification by faith and sanctification by faith. He's highlighting that it's by faith in Christ. So what is Paul saying people must do? they must on the one hand turn and scripture makes it clear that the only reason people turn is because they are enabled to turn but we must turn and we must receive you know in John 1 uh, he came to his own and his own did not receive him and yet to all those who received him to those who believed in his name he gave the right to become children of God so what is this one what's this thing we have to do to receive do you know how hard it is to receive To receive means you've got to acknowledge your need and you want forgiveness and you want a place among God's people. And what is the ground of salvation? What's the reason God can save us, Paul says? Again, the end of verse 18, by faith in Jesus Christ it's not faith in Jesus as teacher, although he is a teacher. He's not, it's not faith in Jesus as example, although he is example. It's by faith in who he is and what he did, his person and his work. It's, it's his death and resurrection that secures our pardon and our place. Again, look at how this section ends. That the Christ must suffer and that being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Paul is saying that it's only the death and resurrection of Jesus that's going to secure both a pardon, forgiveness, but also a place, a family, a home. So we've looked At the audience, the argument and the appeal. I want to return as we head to the end to the idea of practicing what you preach. I mean, this is what Paul is doing. I mean, he told the Corinthians, this is what you need to do. And this is what he's doing. How, why, why can Paul do this? Well, it's because he's a new creation in Christ. And the resurrection is not just a reality out there the resurrection is a reality for Paul personally he's met the resurrected the risen Christ and how how can Paul practice what he preaches because he's depending on Christ look at verse 22 to this day i have had the help that comes from god he writes one church i can do all things through christ who strengthens me. He tells Timothy be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. That mighty, confident, arrogant, sure and certain self-confident. Former Pharisee is now humbly dependent upon the Lord. And yet we all know Paul is not Jesus he fails he sins early in his ministry he says I'm the least of the apostles later on I'm the very least of all the saints and then finally he writes to Timothy that he's the foremost the chief of sinners so where is Paul's hope if he's a sinner even as a Christian where's his hope Paul writes the Roman church, of course, these words, the gospel is the power of God for the salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul is not only proclaiming the gospel, Paul is resting his hope and trust in the gospel. You see, my friends, the gospel is good news for those of us who don't yet practice what we preach You see, the gospel is good news because it's about the only one who does practice what he preaches. And yet, although Jesus Christ alone, of all men, practiced what he preaches, amazingly, he took the blame and got the curse for what he didn't do. So that all of us, all people everywhere who trust in him would get the commendation and the blessing for what they didn't do. Through faith in him, all people would receive a pardon and find a place. Isaiah the prophet writes... The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. Jesus himself says, I am the light of the world. And that those who follow him will not have darkness, but what will they have? They'll have the light of life. My friends, what's so attractive, at least from my perspective of the text that we've just looked at, is Paul can say, this is who I was, this is who I am now, and the only difference between who I was and who I am now is that I now know Jesus. My friends, Jesus does not just separate the calendars It's not just before Christ and after death. Jesus is the division in our own lives between darkness and light, death and life. Despair and joy. My friends, the the text, God's word asks us these two questions. Are you walking in the light? Do you have the light of life? Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that we were so wicked and sinful that Jesus had to die for us. And yet we also acknowledge that we are so loved and treasured that Jesus was glad to die for us. Indeed, those who believe and trust in Jesus are the joy set before Him as He headed to the cross. Oh, Father, we are amazed that Jesus took the curse so that we could receive your blessing. What an amazing exchange as Jesus is both our substitute and he's the sacrifice. Oh, Father, may your word that we have just heard, may it take up residence in our life and change us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ, our suffering Savior, our risen and reigning Lord. Who will return and make all things new? For we pray in his wonderful name. Amen. Jesus said in John chapter 8, I am the light of the world.